You're listening to to the Show We Go Baseball podcast. What is going on, everybody? Welcome into episode 57 of To the Show We Go. Uh, We got a full house. We got Chris Enrique at hand and myself, Andrew Parker, for this one. It's a a good one for us today. Uh, It is the Brian Abraham episode. And if you don't know who that is, if you're under a rock and you don't know who that is, he is the director of player development for the Boston Red Sox. I don't I I did listen to your interview uh, with Brad Foe on WEI at Winter Weekend, and I forgot what he kept calling you. But you're like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm director of player development and uh, I can't remember what he was saying, but um Brian, we are excited to have you. I know Chris, Ed, and myself have some things that, that we want to ask you today, but I wanted to start us off. Uh, it's spring training's right here. Um, you just got back from winter weekend. I, I'm assuming you were probably at Fenway as well for rookie development uh, camp going on. So uh, what what else is uh, in store for the offseason before uh, Fort Myers? Yeah, usually when the calendar turns to January, it becomes uh, pretty busy, pretty hectic. For us, we have uh, we have some PD meetings, more logistical, some amateur meetings, some PD and amateur meetings, kind of the the, the collaboration of departments, and then obviously the the rookie development program, which is one of our our big off season programs we have for a select group of uh, players, uh, prospects that are close to to reaching the big leagues. We just had those, um, as you said, last week uh, up in Boston, then transition right into the winter weekend. Um, this is the first year we had the guys that are in the rookie program attend winter weekend, which was um, a nice little addition, I think, for for us in terms of acclimating them to the media and the fans, as well as uh, you know giving the fans a glimpse into getting to know them um, more on a personal level. And I think just the the kids that were were a part of it really enjoyed kind of really seeing Red Sox Nation in full effect. Um, you know the the the, the cheers, the boos. Uh, the, all the uh, all the excitement of, of being a part of such a great organization, such a great fan base. Um, and then, you know, getting ready for spring training is such a major part of our year. Obviously, those two months to me uh, represents a, a, a ton of time for development, a ton of time of being around staff and players. Our department is so unique where we get to have 165 or so players, all of our staff in one place all at once for that amount of time. And there's really not any other department other than the major league group that really gets to spend time that much time together within the organization. So, um, you know, it, it's focusing on, on the goals that were, were, were working players were working toward in the off season, then providing new goals and expectations for the season ahead, along with staff education, player education, and just really getting to know our guys and, and putting a lot of work on the field. So it's uh, it's busy. Um, now it's a lot of scheduling and, and, and planning for some meetings that we have early on and, and plans with the players. But uh, this is the best time of year. I, I, actually, the best time of year is spring training, but preparing for spring training is, is second best. So it's exciting, but busy. How does your job change when they trade for a new player that's in the minors? Um, like, do you, are you usually before they even acquire the guy, like let's say uh, Alex Verdugo for Richard Fitz and the other two that came in, were you always already acquainted with those three or do you have to go and research and learn about them when they come into the system? I mean, I think no matter what, if we acquire players, there's probably going to be some more digging that happens after we do acquire them. But there are conversations that are having at a, at a higher level and then, you know, in, in, in different levels within the organization where, you know, you have an idea of what's going on, different possibilities, trade conversations that are happening with other organizations that, you know, uh, I think, you know, for myself and other staff members and people within the office, you want to keep tabs on opportunities, different players. And, um, you know, I, I think whenever different conversations get to a certain point, you start digging into it more, maybe potentially looking at where we can optimize certain areas. And obviously not just myself, but our, our pitching department, our hitting department are all involved in a lot of these conversations. And if we're going to acquire a player, um, how can we improve that player? What areas does that player already, already do really well? Where can they um, get better? And um, those conversations are being had. And then if we actually acquire that player, it's again, putting those things on paper, providing um, the player with that plan and, and really getting to know them on a personal level too. I think, that can kind of be uh, overlooked at times. You know, we acquire uh, a Richard Fitz. Uh, it's a it's a phone call, quick to introduce myself, along with some other people within the office. You know, um, you know Craig and others, and then um, getting to meet him, uh, getting to meet him, getting to know him on a personal level, what he feels like he does well, what he feels like he needs to improve upon. Because at the end of the day, uh, it, it's the player's career. 
um, you know, they need to have ownership of what they're working on, what they need to what they need to improve upon and um, allowing them to, to, to fully support those goals is a big part of of what we're trying to achieve here. Now, I was uh, I, something came up, too, because we had Justin Slayton on uh, our last episode and he actually gave uh, I don't know if you were involved in this process, but he gave you guys some credit on like, you know, his situation was obviously unique as he got, you know, he was wearing three hats in one day and uh, he ended up getting traded on uh, on rule five draft day. So he was like, OK, so he got the phone call from the Mets. Then he gets a phone call from the Red Sox as well. And he said he actually gave you some credit that uh, whoever it was like they you guys didn't all just bombard him all at once. You kind of like, you know, you let him kind of settle in and it's like, OK, like the first day you heard from Breslow and then the next day you heard from Bailey. And he's like, wasn't information overload. So that was some credit to uh, Red Sox front office there. That was probably uh, much needed, especially as you, it's a whirlwind of a day for him. But um I'm going to go into my next question. I saw you around uh, Polar Park a little bit this past year. So what what happens, like what goes on for you whenever you are visiting certain places? Like, so whenever you are in Worcester, I notice you usually there maybe once a month, maybe a couple more than that. It depends on the month, I guess. But what goes into your visits? Like what kind of things are you looking to accomplish while you're there? Yeah, I probably am in Worcester more than maybe the staff wants to be. I joke with them a lot. I live about 25 minutes away from Worcester and it's opposite uh, rush hour traffic. So it's a, it's a great place to visit and, and just to be able to go. It's a little bit more accessible in terms of being on the field, being in the clubhouse as compared to someplace like Fenway. Obviously, Fenway is, is Fenway. It's a um, larger group of people in, in um, the major league. So it could be, you know, and not my direct responsibility, obviously handling the major league group. So I think whenever I'm going to an affiliate, you know, I go to every affiliate multiple times a year. Um, sometimes specifically for Worcester example, it might be a direct reason for to have a conversation with a player about um, what they're doing on the field or their performance or thing we need, something we need to talk about, or it could be related to a staff member about, um, you know, players X, Y, and Z are reaching, uh, are, are reaching their goals. We need to focus on something else, or maybe they're not reaching um, certain, certain goals that we have in, in place for them. So I think there are some, there are different times that I'm going to go there. There's going to be a very specific need, a very specific conversation I need to have. Sometimes it's just, I prefer to have it face to face versus on the, on the phone. And because I'm close, I, I, I prefer to do that, but it's also too, to, to watch, I mean, to get to know people, um, to be around a lot of these conversations and things that happen with players and staff happen organically just because I am around and, and I try to be accessible. I think if you listen to any of the higher end executives in this game, like being accessible and having their door open and being around for players to maybe just come up and have a conversation that leads into maybe something else is something they all truly value and want to be able to provide for, for the group. So that's something, especially in Worcester with players that are close to the big leagues have already been the big leagues um, you know, always wanting to be in the biggest, they're, they're a call away of, of getting there, um, you know, being around and just being available to someone that can, I can provide insight to about why was I sent down? Why am I not up? Um, you know, what do I need to do to, to get to Boston and stay in Boston, those types of things. So I'm um, trying to just be around, uh, is a big piece of that. And, you know, I, I do think like the, the, the relationship building is a, is a big piece. Um, getting to know these guys, watching them play. So you can say, Hey, I just watched you pitch six innings and I, really enjoyed the way you used your cut fastball because that was a big part of your player plan and a focus of yours going into the outing. And while you might not have had the success you wanted, you really reached the the goal of wanting to work on that because that is something that's going to allow you to be in the big leagues for, for a longer period of time. So small things like that, I think are, are valuable. And just, I think support knowing that, uh, you know, ultimately in a, in a lot of ways, I am the, the final decision maker on the minor league side, just letting staff and players know that I'm there watching and not just sitting from afar making decisions, I think is an important piece of that as well. Um, so we had uh, Blaze Jordan on a couple weeks ago, and he mentioned that uh, he, I mean, and I'm sure you know this, he's gotten, his, he's really gotten his conditioning down this offseason, but he was talking about playing some third base uh, going into the season also. And then the Baseball America rankings come out earlier this week, and he's listed as, I think, seventh for first base prospects. But he seemed to really be talking about coming into the season, being able to play some third. So I guess my, my question is, where do you see Blaze's role when the season starts? And also, how often do the publications and what's actually going on in the minor league system disconnect? Uh, 
I'll answer the, the second question first. I guess, you know, we, we have our internal valuations and how we view players. I would think I, to me, I would just say, you know, versatility is, is valuable. Um, if a guy can play multiple positions really well, that's, that's a good thing. I think it's very rare to find players that are only playing one position throughout their entire career, unless they're at the top end of, of, of their game. You know, I, Marcelo, before he got hurt last year, I, I think is a good example. Like he played third base. So, um, you know, I would say a guy who's a high end, high end player for us, like he, you know, the ability to play another position or other positions is really valuable, really valuable. Um, you know, publications, like I always would say, like, I'd much rather our players be towards the top. I'd much rather our product system be towards the top than toward the bottom. But again, I, I don't think that we're necessarily looking at those and saying, wow, you know, so-and-so has us, has our players ranked seventh. I, I wish they had it better. Certainly would would prefer them to be towards the top, but again, we can only can control what we control. We have our um, our internal valuations, our internal ways to evaluate our players objectively, and um, we'll, we you know we utilize those and rely on those to really give us the best um, ability to provide information and and, and transparency to our players. Um, for Blaze, I saw Blaze recently. He looks great. He lost a good amount of weight. His body is, is as good as I've ever seen him. You know, I, again, the versatility piece, be able to play first base and third base coming up as a third base from the versatility at both corners is really valuable. Um, it's great that they had him as a high ranking first baseman. I don't think that would um, limit him from getting time at third base as well. Um, anytime you can get a guy like that who can uh, hit the ball hard uh, in the lineup more consistently, the better, um, you know, whether he's in Portland or somewhere at the upper levels, I think as most people know, we have a lot of prospects or a lot of really good uh, position players there. So anytime you can play multiple positions, it allows you to get in the lineup. And I would say that's a really good thing for him. And his mindset to me at the very least is right. You know, you don't want to just pigeonhole yourself into only being a first baseman. There's less opportunity to have uh, a chance to, to, to move around and get, get in the lineup. So um, he will play some third base. He'll play some first base. He'll DH. And, you know, like others, like the more ability he shows in the field, the more opportunities he's going to get. You had mentioned a few minutes ago too, about, you know, when you're at the ballpark and evaluating and, um, you know, kind of looking at these players, Brian Mata came to mind for me. And reason why he's like, you know, obviously before he got hurt last year, his stuff's incredible. He was inconsistent at times on the mound. I mean, there was the one game where he, I think he had four, four out of five batters he faced to hit them in the same inning. Like I never seen that before. Um, and then after that, he went on to the IL. Now he's a 40 man. He's on the 40 man. He's going to go into spring training and obviously a candidate to make the roster. It's either make the roster kind of bust because there's no options. What's your thoughts on him though? Like how is he looking this winter? Um, and then what should we expect out of Mata going into spring training? Yeah. Like you said, he's competing for a spot in that, that, that major league roster because he's out of options. So, um, you know, we sent him to the fall league for, for more innings. Uh, everything that we'd want, uh, in terms of the work, in terms of the mindset, in terms of coming into camp prepared, we're expecting him or he, he, he is there. Now I think it's just at a point where he needs to perform. You know, he can only prepare and be, be ready to, to, to perform so much. And then, then you actually have to do it on, on the mound. So that is the point where he's at in his career, where we're going to have to see some success during spring training. He's going to have to stay healthy. He's going to have to be able to repeat his deliveries and have to be able to throw strikes, do all those things. So he can be a reliable arm, in the bullpen. I, I I don't think we are, are built to have a roster of someone who's not going to be able to be utilized um, to their maximum capacity on a, on a daily, on a daily basis. I don't think any, any, any organization or major league roster is, you know, there's, there's, there's 26 men on the roster and they all need to be utilized. It's, it's really, really hard to hide. Um, you know, anyone, you, you look at rule five picks very rarely um, are they kept for full season if they are not performing or succeeding because, you need 26 men to have success in the big league. So um, again, I think he's done everything we want physically, mentally. Um, you know, it was, it's been, a, it's been a hard road, no doubt. I, you know, injuries are difficult. Uh, he's had uh, ups and downs. He's had um, progress and he's had regression in terms of the physical side. But I think we're finally at a point now where hopefully the, the stuff that he has, like you said, you know, he's got, he's got electric stuff when he's healthy, when he's on, um, we're hopeful in those those shorter stints uh, where he can recover um, will allow him to have success on our major league roster. So I, I have a two-parter for you. You just brought up the Rule 5, and I, I saw the Red Sox were towards the top of the list of having guys selected um, minor league uh, side and then obviously major league side. Um, so I, I got two, two-parter here. So first, 
part is how difficult is was it to see two guys in Ryan Fernandez and Shane Drohan being selected and temporarily gone? Obviously, we don't know if they're gone yet, but uh, temporarily gone. And then two from the minor league side of things. Did you did you know that was that was a possibility you would lose as many guys as you did? And I guess what like did you have a plan in place on if you did lose an X amount of numbers number of guys? Yeah, I mean, a g- good question. The Rule Five is such an interesting topic, and there's so many different things that that go into it. on the on the major league side. Obviously, there's a there's a forty man man roster piece, and you know there's a, a lot of different people and a lot of information that is utilized to make the best decision for for the current roster and, and for the future as well. Obviously, we cannot protect everyone, but I think trying to make the best uh, informed decision with the information we have is, is ultimately what we try to do. Definitely difficult to lose players that we feel like have grown with us within the Red Sox organization. We've seen them grow, develop, and quite frankly, like still feel like we'll have success in the future. Um, so yeah, it, it's hard, but I obviously wish them the best, wish them success. And you know, if there if, if there's a, a chance when they get back to us, uh, like an AJ Politi did. Uh, in recent years, like we're going to do our best to continue to allow them to develop and grow within this organization and get them a chance to to do that with the Boston Red Sox. And if not, um, two great kids, um, two guys I've gotten to know really well and, and have had some ups and downs in their own personal development, but uh, excited to see them get an opportunity um, to, to have su- the success with with the White Sox and, and the Cardinals, respectively. Um, on the minor league side, it's difficult, you know. I, there's a lot of different factors that come into play here and you can only protect so many different players. So some of it is there's some risk and reward here. You, you protect some guys that you feel very comfortable protecting. And there's some other guys just because of the, the, the number you are able to protect um, that you just are unable to, and you have to draw the line somewhere based on, again, our internal valuations, our projections, um, roster ability, you know, whether or not these guys are actually going to have a chance to play and compete um, for us for at bats or innings. Um, at the lower levels, especially when you have a draft, when you have international free agent classes that are continuing to progress, when you have drafted classes that are progressing, when you have guys in a ball for multiple years, it's really hard to continue to try to find playing time for those types of players, even though there might still be talent. So it's tough. You know, at the end of the day, you want them to get an opportunity. Uh, I really believe that, you know, you obviously want people, you want, we want our players to have the most success, but um, for another organization to feel like some of our younger players have developed enough or have shown enough, uh, uh, on the field for them to get an opportunity elsewhere. I, I think that's a really good thing. I would say probably a few more than we would have preferred and probably a few that we were really hoping were not selected. But again, that's that's kind of the, the risk within the minor league phase. And the reward of it is that there's not a, a high acquisition cost. It's an opportunity to get different players that are interesting um, that you can maybe plug into an A-ball roster that might be um, exciting or might you know be able to provide some type of talent that maybe your organization does not have. So um, in terms of backfilling you know some of it's just current the you know our the roster limit has decreased so we don't have to release maybe as many players that is that is one piece and then it's maybe you know getting a, a few more minor league free agents uh maybe focusing on maybe a couple more guys in the double a or high area and taking a chance on some um guys with uh, uh side that maybe we would have had the opportunity to to sign otherwise um, so building on that there was a, a pretty cool story last year with zach penrod coming in from Indy ball up in, I think it was Idaho. And, you know, a couple months later, he's pitching opening day for in, in the Arizona fall league. What was the decision to, to bring him in? Like how long had he been scouted for? And did he surpass expectations or was it what you expect? Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a large process that happens behind the scenes before someone like that is even signed. Our, our pro scouting group, um, Harrison Slusky and Mark Heil do such a really good job of, of using our, our scouts on the ground, searching independent, um, independent ball leagues, David Scrivens, who I, I know is, has, has helped us sign some, some different players. I think actually he was the one who found Fitzy um, for, uh, you know, Worcester, Worcester's finest, Ryan, Ryan Fitzgerald. Um, but it, it's, it's, you know, we're always looking at players. We're always looking to Im, Im, improve our talent pool. Um, different times throughout the year, there might be a note that myself um, or Chris Stacio sends to, to the pro group and say, hey, you know, we're light on depth in this particular area because of injuries, because of promotions, that type of thing. And just the way things had settled out in Greenville at the time, 
we had reached out to the guys probably a couple months earlier, quite frankly, just said, Hey, we're probably going to have a few promotions. You know, we have a couple prospects that we're trying to protect innings wise and not overuse them. Let's just keep an eye out for some arms. And, you know, Sean Havill at the time, our, our, our director, director of pitching and development was involved as well. And, you know, threw some names back and forth. Um, Zach's name had come up, was really interesting. Probably, um, I think he was actually pitching as a reliever at the time, but what felt like he could be stretched out, had really interesting pitch data. And then he kind of was off the, hadn't pitched in a while. He, he got banged up. So we kind of put it on the back burner and then he ended up pitching again. But Mark and, and Harrison did a really good job of staying on him and just keeping us updated with where he was. And then there was an opportunity for us to potentially just add him and throw him into, into the rotation. Um, you know, did our did our background work on, on the player, on the person, and felt like it was a good chance to to buy low on someone who had some um, upside, whether it be, you know, old, you know, obviously he started, but even as a as a left-handed power um, power reliever. And uh Exceeded expectations, I would say you know, certainly. Um, you know, I think we were hoping he'd be able to to eat up some innings in high A, and you know, getting into the system, getting into the organization, working with Bob Kipper, our pitching coach down there, being able to work with our pitching development group. Just um, a couple of optimization opportunities with his pitch with his pitch mix, um, getting him to to throw more strikes, which was a, a, an issue that he had had previously in pro ball, um, led to some immediate success when he when he made some some improvements. So. Um, Exceeded expectations for sure. I also don't think we try to put too many expectations on our players because in a lot of ways, like they create where they go based on the work that they're putting in and, and the willingness to make adjustments. So um, just, I guess, his willingness to adjust, his willingness to make changes, his willingness to challenge himself was really cool to see and special. And he he really acclimated himself well to, to, to Greenville and really, I think, uh, was the, was the, 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 the starting the starting ace the ace for them down the stretch really he Perales and um Monegro led them to a to a championship I don't think they they, they might have given up like three runs in the playoffs it was pretty wild um and you know I saw him come back in the championship after starting game one he came back and threw I think four or five innings in relief it was just dominant and uh, it was pretty special to see and you know again giving him an opportunity to go to the fall league and take it take it up a notch against even better competition was was really exciting and um you know who knows? Maybe we have uh, a, an interesting left-handed starter that can make a impact down the road at the upper levels and eventually in Boston. Yes, you so, mentioned um, stretching out that he was somebody that you saw that he could be stretched out. Um, something that I, I've I've always been a little curious about is how do you determine who's better suited for the bullpen, and then when a reliever comes back to the rotation, because a, a guy that comes to mind um, is Josh Winkowski, who. Took his lumps his rookie year, like a lot of rookies do. Ended up in the pen, throwing two, sometimes three innings. But he was a really good setup guy. And we, we've heard throughout this offseason, nothing's been outright stated, but it sounds like he's somebody that might be stretched out as well. And I, I don't want you to talk about anything you can't talk about with that. But I am curious what goes into that decision that, okay, maybe we can stretch this guy out and he can go instead of one or two innings, maybe he can go five or six or seven. Yeah, I mean, I think if the, the first two things that come to mind are like starters are a lot more valuable because they throw more innings. Uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, especially at the start of the year, it's much easier to stretch someone out and pull them back versus the opposite. Um, it's a lot harder to start someone in a shorter stint and then try to stretch them out later in the season because you feel like they could start. So I think it's always easier, even if you feel like someone ends up being a multiple inning reliever, to have them try to get the three, four, potentially five innings um, early on and then kind of decide where the roster is and, and make adjustments accordingly. In terms of whether or not a pitcher is a starter reliever, that's a we might need a whole nother podcast for that, and, and probably some pitching uh, pitching experts in as well. I would just say that you know some of it is physicality, no doubt. Like I think like anyone you ask, like strength, um, ability to handle a workload, ability to to throw hard, like those are things that matter as a starter these days. Like it just does. Um, every five days, the amount of innings you're expected. Um, the amount of pitches you throw. And then I would say like for us, like internal pitch data, the ability to have multiple pitches. Are there some starters that can get away with two pitches? Yes. Very rare, very, very rare. And usually those are probably on, I think, I think of, I know Spencer Strider, I think is one who comes to mind. Um, they're not, they're, there are too many, I, I would say. Um, so I, I think be able to have at, at least three uh, average to above average pitches, um, with the ability to command the baseball, I, I think is something that um, that we look at. And then obviously being able to stay within the strike zone and getting outs in the strike zone for, you know, 
multiple times through the order. Um, you know, I, I, again, another argument, you know, going go the third time through the order is, is, is a big thing, but, you know, be able to do it two times through the order, not all relievers are able to do that. So um, having, having an arm that can do that and understanding that with, with pitch data and, and the way we can look at, uh, information more objectively. I think it allows us to make better, more informed decisions, but I'd say on the minor league side, like we want to stretch guys out. We want to give them the opportunity to start as long as, as long as we can, because I think one of the big things is that people probably don't realize is like, if you're relieving in the minor leagues, you're just not getting the innings. You're not getting the work in that you really probably need to have in game situations to work on pitches, to get batters out, um, to, to, to work within game situations that you do as a starter. So I, I think like you're just going to get more opportunities as a starter, more innings, more opportunities to throw. So the longer you can do that, the better. Um, and then I think there too, um, in terms of development, there's different ways to kind of manipulate that. I think if you looked at some of our rosters and some of our, our game outings for some of our, our relievers, you have guys going multiple innings, but they're, they're really working very aggressively in between innings. So they might throw on a Tuesday, might not throw again on the Friday or a Saturday, but in between that, those outings, they're having a really aggressive high effort bullpen that is not game situation, but very close where they're really working on pitch design, really working on their pitches, really working on um, their command and the control where it's um, something that they can actually, we can uh, show tangible improvements versus just kind of a touch and feel side session where they're not really working on anything, which I think is very much a thing of the past. So there's different ways to kind of approach it, but um, you know, if we could have everyone start, I'd I'd much rather have that. It's a lot, uh, as I think it's probably been discussed more often than I'd like to like to hear about starting pitching is hard to develop. Um, but I, I also think like some stars don't become starters because they're better utilized as, as relievers, depending on what their major league roster looks like. I think we have a lot of guys that end up becoming uh, length relievers because of the needs of the big league, big league, you know, wink and cutter even at times. And Chris Murphy, like those guys are starters, but because they were best suited for a bullpen role at the time, they went up in those, those roles. And then, you know, Cutter has transitioned back into the starting role. Um, you know, as you said, Wink, you know, even like guys like Pavetta, Whitlock, I mean, that, the whole, a lot of our pitchers are all similarly like that, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, if they could all start, I think that would be the ideal situation. Start well, not poorly. <laughs> so I want to stay on the pitching theme um, really quick. Um, last year, actually the last two years, it seems like the organization has, um, elevated players faster. Like guys have gotten their promotions. It, it just, cause in years past, you know, if like Johan being promoted, um, it kind of came as like a surprise, you know what I mean? What arms right now in the system do you see as a, I think you had mentioned before, like it's really all on them, but who right now do you see as like candidates that could elevate a little bit faster that maybe, you know, people aren't talking about cause everybody's laser focused on Meyer and Teal and those guys. Um, but who are some of these younger arms in the system that you could see kind of grow like that this year? Um, you know, my, my immediate, the immediate two are like the guys we had to the 40 man, Wilkeman and, and Perales. Like, you know, they both, what, you know, Wilkeman ended in double A and Perales and, and high A, you know, whether or not they start at those places or not, I think just because of the stuff they have and the fact that they're on the 40 man allows for probably more the necessity for them to move up quicker because of the, the, the clock that is, that is on their, their roster status. Um, in terms of just like the, the promotion or the timing, I think there's a lot of things that come to play there. Some of it is age, you know, obviously guys only have a certain amount of time for them to be able to maximize who they are. And the other part is the, the, the want to challenge players. You know, I think Drew is a good example. Like he was the lack of a better word, like dominating in double a, like how beneficial is that for his development to continue to go six, you know, six innings, you know, nine punch outs and one run versus really being challenged in triple a like he was and like maybe having some some struggles and maybe uh maybe having to make some adjustments uh i i would argue it's probably better to challenge him and force him to make those adjustments in triple a versus him going through a full season of double a losing a whole year of development and then trying to start this year in triple a or us not knowing whether or not um you know we want to protect a guy like that because he hasn't shown what he's need to show to potentially be a roster protect um in terms of starters, you know, Manegro is one who comes to mind, like off uh, off the bat, um, you know, uh, uh, Hoppy, Troy, I know those guys are relievers, but just some like interesting young arms that throw hard. Um, that could be issue. Luis Guerrero, another one. I know we finished in AAA, but like those guys have moved fairly, fairly quick, all things considered when they've been healthy. 
Um, so I, I think those, those are the guys that kind of come to my, come to, come to my head initially. Um, but I think there's a handful of guys who kind of fit the criteria you're talking about. Once they have that success, once they show that they can kind of throw strikes and get outs in the strike zone and we have to challenge them, there'll be opportunity for promotions. I want to ask about a position that's near and dear to your heart. Got a little soft spot for it. The catcher position from your college days and as a, as a bullpen catcher. So um, obviously the catcher position in the, in the org is, uh, in really good hands in the future. Um, but I was listening back to an interview we, we did uh, about a month ago and we had Steven Scott on who is one of the more interesting guys in the system just due to like, he just flat out said like, Hey, I couldn't even tell you what position I got drafted as. Like I, I, I technically have no idea. Um, and then he had a phone call with you and it, it wasn't really much convincing that he needed from you to be like, how would you feel about catching full time? And he just said, absolutely. Like I'll do what I need to do. But so the catching position, you have two guys that finished the year in double a that are, that look pretty close to triple a ball. You have a guy like Steven Scott, who's going to be sharing some time with two veterans that were brought in with some MLB experience for some depth for the big league club. How do you find at bats over the course of the season for all of these guys, I, I think even Marrero too in, in double A along with Hickey and Teal. So how do you find bats for everybody as the season goes on and or even early on in the season? Good question. <laughs> uh, you have the, I hope you have the answer because I don't. Um, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, you know, I, there's a bunch of different things that come in the, come in the play. You know, some, some of these guys have different things in their contract, but they might not be with us admittedly. Like, you, you know, they could make the major league team. Um, there could be injuries that, that part is like, you know, obviously we're not banking on those things, but that, that could happen. Certainly. Um, the other part is giving guys opportunities in other positions, like a Steven Scott, he played um, some first base last year. He can play the outfield, you know, Hickey, we've talked about playing some first base as well, giving him the opportunity to, to just expose himself to, to get his bat in the lineup, which is really the driver, um, to, to just see some a chance to play play in some different spots. So uh, one of the good things about the minor leagues is that guys don't really play every day like they do in the big leagues, but you can kind of you know shift some things around with a DH spot to get guys the at-bats they need. Um, and then there's some you know clear expectations or you know um, that were provided to minor league free agents and different people saying, hey, like you know you're co- coming in here, you're going to get this many at-bats because we have so-and-so player here. And when this player comes here, there's a chance we might have a different conversation about where you're going to be and how you're going to um, where you're going to see some time. So, um, you know, we do have a lot of interesting guys, but I also think we have a couple of guys that can play a couple of positions. And, um, you know, one way or another, we'll make sure that the, the 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 priority guys and the guys that we feel like can impact the major league club in the, in the future will get the bats that they need. So a couple of years ago, I, I was uh, I was able to talk with uh, Alan Zinter, who was a first round pick between Mo Vaughn and Chuck Knobloch back in the 80s. And I remember something that stood out that he said was that they have like media, they had media literacy classes, like how, how to talk to reporters. But this was back in, in the late 80s. And I'm, I'm sure that they still do that. I heard I, I mean, I heard the York and Anthony and Mayor and Teal speaking. And you know, if I were 21, I wouldn't be able to talk nearly as well as they do. But I'm curious if there's anything about social media literacy and just what uh, what what they should say to the public and what not to say when they come into the organization, because I feel like that's something that's a little more uncharted and you know, we've seen the ramifications of somebody maybe saying something that they shouldn't have. So I, I just wanted to know how you, um, how that's approached when they enter the organization. Yeah. Major league baseball has different um, sessions and, and education that, that all minor leaguers are required to do, but we also, the Red Sox have been, we've, we've done a, you know, all the way from the top over the last few years and specifically with our new players have been pretty adamant about making sure we get in front of this pretty quickly. You know, we have our right when players get drafted or even when they come over for the first time um, internationally, we have a, a first year player program and we have um, someone from, you know, we have media relations speak to them like the Red Sox media relations speak to them about making sure that they know who they are, Justin Long and, and Abby Murphy, making sure like, Hey, we are, we work for the Red Sox. We're here to support you and anything you need, we're, we're here to help and here's some tips and, different things that can help. If you have questions, if you're unsure, if there's something on social media that you feel like should not be on there, whatever it may be, because, you know, we obviously are flagging a lot of things before we draft players, but there are some things that slip through the cracks that 
maybe someone did by accident or they were unsure of, or they retweet, you know, social media is an interesting place where you can retweet something, not know you really did it. And it's caused the firestorm. So that is a piece. And then we also have external um, education as well. We do that. We did that during the rookie program. We do that during our first year program. We do that for all of our young players in Fort Myers. We do it during spring training. It's pretty heavy um, because it is, you know, it gets a bit of a bad rap, I think at times, but I do think it's important for players to be able to show who they are on a personal level. I, I'm sure you, know, you mentioned Blaze Jordan earlier. I I watched Blaze Jordan's social media and, and it's, it's very interesting to see the personal side and the work he's putting in and some of the things he discussed. Like I very much appreciate that. I told him that like I, that, that means a lot to me. It means a lot to him. It means a lot to a lot of people to be able to express that on a platform and to be able to do that with the platform he has. So being able to do those types of things in a way that you can express yourself is really important. As long as you're doing it respectfully, understanding you represent yourself, you're representing your family and representing the organization. Um, so again, yeah, we do a lot of that training and uh, it's a chance for a lot of guys to open themselves up and maybe someone feels a little bit more comfortable saying something on Instagram than they do at, at a press conference or live to some fans. Like everyone's different. I definitely think, I feel like I'm not, I'm saying kids these days. I'm, I don't think I'm old, but I do have a 10 year old. Like he is much more aware of like what, if I gave him my phone, he know exactly what to do, how to go on, so, you know, Instagram and whatever, whatever else he's going on. Then, then I would have at that age for sure. So um, I appreciate it. I want guys to be able to use it. And I want people to be able to tell their story and I want people to, to be able to show their families what they're doing, uh, you know, what they're working on, what they're working through, but also understand like there is a part that is, you know, somewhat uh, needed to be behind closed doors in the sense like there are some things that we want to focus on just being within the Red Sox, but also like love when players are able to show who they are and what they, what they're trying to be um, as Boston Red Sox players. All right, guys, we're getting to that part of the show. He's given us like 37 minutes of his time, but I want to empty the bench. Both of you guys, Ed, Chris, any final questions now is the time because I'm going to end it on three random rapid fire questions. All right. I got two questions for you that aren't, um, that aren't immediate Red Sox questions, just things that I'm curious about. So you went to Holy Cross. Did you ever watch the Worcester Tornadoes play when you were down there? My in between my sophomore and junior year, they built the tornado. They built the new park. So we ended up playing somewhere else in Worcester. So I, I did. Rich Gedman was the manager uh, at the time. And I've known Getty for a long time. And now he's uh, an employee of mine, which is kind of funny. But uh, <laughs> yes, I did watch Worcester Tornadoes baseball. I was I was a big fan of them back in the day, so just just curious. Um, my other question is: You made the jump with uh, John Farrell over to the Red Sox in uh, right before 2013. What was was that something that Farrell insisted on? Was it just a coincidence? Like what what was going on there? Um, we had a really good relationship. Uh, he was kind of the one when he was with the Blue Jays had asked me what I wanted to do with my career, and I. I just really wanted to work in baseball. Um, I didn't really know. And he had asked me if I had ever thought of player development. I really didn't know exactly what that was. So he had been a farm director. We had a lot of different conversations. He pushed me to go to instructional league with the Blue Jays and kind of learn more about it. And we just formed a really good relationship. Someone who I think all of us in our professional careers always look to someone that can provide that insight and support. And he was that for me, along with a lot of other, you know, that, that staff was Brian Butterfield, Tori Lovello. I mean, very, very, very lucky to have some really great people to, to work with and, and support me. But when he came over, he called me and asked if I wanted to be bullpen catcher with the Red Sox. I That was not really what I was thinking. I, my next step was going to be a bullpen catcher, but it was with the expectation there was a possibility to do some advanced scouting, be involved in some other areas. And that's exactly what what happened. And, you know, you put your trust on in, in some people and you hope things will work out uh, if they if they have your back and, you know, got me to where I am today. And just so happy we won a World Series that year, so it worked out pretty well. When your family told them you were coming back to Boston, what did, what was the reaction? My family was really excited. My wife, who's from Toronto, was not too excited. <laughs> but they're they're all Ooh. Red Sox fans now, so it worked out. Uh, it worked out pretty well. I have two. One is on a player that I'm curious about. Um, <clears throat> last year, the team signed 18 um, year old uh, Korean uh, Chan Sol Lee. Not a lot out there on him, and people have, you know, kind of asked on social media from here, uh, time to time, 
what can you share about him that we can, with this podcast, kind of bring to Red Sox fans? Yeah, I, I haven't seen him throw live. Um, I, I, so just because of the timing of him him coming in here, but from from the limited time our staff has gotten to know him, just someone who's really come in and really wanted to work hard, learn, very open minded. Um, we have a translator that is going to be to be working with him directly, which is obviously a huge huge help in terms of bridging that gap of, of communication. And I think like, I think, you know, he posted something very early on social media about really being excited to be a Red Sox. And he has uh, exemplified that in the short amount of time he, he's been with us, been open to make adjustments, been open to change, really has worked hard in the weight room with his, the physical side. So um, again, don't have too much just because, you know, we'll, we'll see a lot more this spring, but in terms of a young player wanting to get better, I think like he's everything, you know, you could ask. Um, I, I feel like too, I didn't answer your, your pitching question as much as I would have liked. Um, I just, as, as, as I thought through, like thinking of other guys, you know, the Dalton Rogers of the world, you know, Connerly Earlies, who we drafted last year, um, Hayden Mullins, who came off Tommy John, who got to see Salem last year, just a couple of interesting young guys. Um, you know, we mentioned Penrod earlier, a guy like Inhel Bastardo, who wasn't selected in the rule five draft. I, you know, again, not to like push our pitching group, but I think there's some guys that probably aren't maybe as high end that have a really chance to make some significant steps forward this year. Well, I think that's the case with a lot of, with the org, because a lot of people and fans, they're the hyper focus is on starting pitching. And, you know, we've seen that play out on, on social media and how that's been going and, and whatnot. But I don't think that people are giving enough credit to a lot of the group that's there. When we talked to Haim last year too, he had mentioned just the excitement that he had for a lot of the players in the lower levels that were just kind of scratching the surface with the team. And now, you know, those names are starting to, to pop. You talked about a few of the guys a little while ago, um, you know, watching Dalton Rogers highlights on social media. And, you know, just there is, I think there's more to be excited about from a pitching standpoint that I don't think the team is getting enough credit for. Yeah. And I think too, having Justin Willard come on board um, and Andrew Bailey as well, just, I think we had made some significant strides in our pitching development, just the staffing over the last few years. But whenever you bring in someone new from the outside, even if they have some similar thoughts, they're going to have different perspectives, different ideas, different thoughts, a different way of looking at the pitchers that we have for allow for better improvement. So he's going to challenge our pitchers. He's going to challenge our staff. Um, he has already done so. And we've already made some changes to how we do some things. So um, coming from an organization that has had a lot of success in that area is really exciting to have him you know, be fully integrated into this organization. We're excited to bring him on board to be a big piece of this group. And when, uh, when you're not doing baseball, obviously you're doing baseball pre 65, when you're, when you get a chance to just step away, what does that look like for you? Like, you know, what are, what are some things you like to do? Like I was joking with Andrew before we, we started recording. Cause like, I'm excited for the Royal rumble tomorrow. You know, I'm going to, that, you know, I, I get into wrestling from January to WrestleMania. That's like my thing. Um, but what is what is something that you like to do when you're away from baseball, you, your family, something like that? Yeah, I, I will say the farm director role is a pretty all in role, um, which I love. Like that is part of the reason I love I love the job. I have a 10 year old son, Logan, and a seven year old daughter, Lizzie. Uh, my son, Logan, plays hockey uh, and baseball. Hockey is a full time full time job. And I've, I've learned, I've really grown to love the sport. So that is something, you know, in the off season, especially just, you know, this time of year, I love being a part of, I love being around him. And my daughter Lizzie does gymnastics and dance. Um, so just being with my family, I, I, I love my wife now that I, I probably don't spend as much time with them as I would like to just because of the nature of the job. But you know, the, the small times they came to winter weekend, you know, Logan got to come to the Bruins game with our rookie players um, and he got to sit for, you know, Tristan Cassis for like 30 minutes. And it's just that type of stuff I think is really, um, really cool. And um, again, family is a, is, is a big one. I'm, you know, I'm a sports fan. I like watching, I, I like watching the Patriots. Try, <laughs> I tried to watch the Patriots, um, you know, all, all sports. So, you know, Bruins, Celtics, all that, all that fun stuff. But I would say family to me is like the thing that, um, you know, if I really have the time, I, I really try to put an effort into being around and, and being present because just the nature of the job forces you not to be present. So, you know, whether it be putting my phone away or even if it's just watching a game with, with, with my son or, or my family, I really enjoy doing those types of things. All right. I guess got a few last random questions here and then we'll, we'll let you go. I know you probably have 10 more meetings today. So, <laughs> Oh, it is Friday. Actually. I don't know. Um, first one, you did kind of just dive into this a little bit, but, um, 
I am. I want to see what your response is. So you're still a young guy. You're on the right side of 40. Um, and you obviously have two kids. What is the what is the best part about being a dad? And then second part of that is what is the most interesting like part just dealing with with kids? Whew, that's a that's a that's a good one. I think the best part of being a dad is just the unconditional love that they they give you. Um, player development is an interesting job because in a lot of ways it is kind of being like a dad to a lot of baseball players. You're teaching them different things. It, I compare it a lot to being a teacher when people ask like, what is player development? And they have no idea. It's a lot of just being a teacher, but you're with them along the way. It's not just third grade when you have a third grade teacher and then you, they go up to fourth grade, you never see them again. You are with them the entire way. You get to teach them things on the field, off the field, you get to challenge them, you get to see them fail, get to see them have success. And I think as a parent, you know, watching your kids try to do things, struggle, and then ultimately having the success that you you want them to have, I think is really, really fulfilling. So that that's the best part. Just I think the unconditional love and watching them succeed in whatever they're wanting to do, whether it be, you know, scoring a goal or doing a, a going to a, a gymnast competition and, and doing well, like those things are, are pretty pretty special um what was the sorry what was the what was the second part of that i just am curious because i've i i heard chad tracy saying like oh well like i got a call like from the wife and kids and you know they this was going on and it was it was it, it was like a funny story so like, like what is the most like i don't know just like unique and not the i'm not gonna say like the worst part but just being like oh man like we gotta we gotta deal with this maybe unexpected yeah, yeah, I mean, I would say my, I try to be as locked in at home as I am with my job with certain things, but my wife would probably say, I know every player's name, every staff member's name, you know, what they need to do and where they need to go at all times. But if I, if she asked me where we were supposed to be tomorrow at two o'clock and there was something specific, I would have no idea. Um, or the people that we met and, you know, the husband's very interested in talking about baseball, that doesn't really do it for me, to be honest. So, um, I would say like not being as locked or like there's just unexpected scheduling. And I, my, I'm sure Trace definitely would say this, like our wives are really the heroes and like the, the keys to, to a lot of what we do, because there's probably so much of what they're taking care of that um, one, I couldn't do. Um, and then two, like, I'm not even aware of what she's doing the time that she gives up and she has a full-time job too. Um, the time that she gives up to be able to support our kids and get them to where they need to go. So um that is that is one and, and like i think trace is unique because like they're when they're gone they're gone they they don't have as much flexibility i think that's one of the things moving into the office i really valued and appreciate i can you know if, say i'm at a worcester game i could leave a worcester game if i absolutely had to you know trace isn't going to be leaving in the fifth inning to go home uh to check on his kids barring an extreme emergency if my son called me he's like hey i really need you to come home i probably could go home not ideal but like i, I can do that so um you know it is a unique lifestyle for sure. Uh, I don't think sometimes I probably appreciate it enough being able to walk outside and see in Fenway Park or my son appreciates it enough to be able to hang around with, you know, Nick York, Marcelo, Roman Anthony and Kyle Teal, like got, you know, kids that everyone wants to meet and he's just hanging out with these guys. Like I don't, maybe so, hopefully someday he will. And I try to um, make sure he appreciates that type of stuff and not everyone gets to experience that, but um, it's a unique lifestyle for sure. Uh, one that is just very normal for myself and my family. I would say actually one, one, a good one is leaving for spring training for two months every year. Like my family's coming down for a week and a half for the rest of that. I'm just gone. And, you know, not too many people just leave their house or their home for two months for work and then come back. Like it's just part of their lives. Like I know some people travel for work and they have to go overseas and there's more other things, but it, every year for two months I'm gone and people are like, Oh, that's, that doesn't make any sense. It's just a very normal part of part of our lives. All right. I got two quick ones left yep. and then we'll let you go. Yep. Um, let's, let's throw you in the time machine here. Let's go back. Let's say, let's say go back 20 years. Um, so this is pre-kids is you're, you're in college right now. You're, you're living your best life. I don't know if you had maybe long hair or whatever. I don't know, but <laughs> let's go back 20 years ago. One year I did. Yeah. Okay. So you had some good lettuce going on, whatever. So you're a little younger. What was a like a guilty pleasure of Brian a Abraham growing up? Oof. Jeez. I you know 
I guess I don't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think I was like most young, you know, I was a, 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 a student athlete. I very much, you know, just the schools I went to and the kids I hung out with, like we were very competitive school and sports were really valuable. I guess hanging with the boys and just watching football on a, on a Sunday, like, like, like a lot of people in this area. Like I thought that was, I remember like being in high school and watching, I think it was high school, us watching uh, the snow, the, the game when, when, uh, against the Raiders, the tuck rule game, I guess. And, you know, my buddies were over our house and they were losing. We went outside and played snow football in our backyard and we watched Venetary kick the field goal from my backyard through a window. And we were just going bonkers. Like, I know that's not like a guilty pleasure, but I think just like hanging with the boys, maybe having a, you know, a couple beverages and stuff, you know, that type of stuff, you know, normal, normal uh, New England fun stuff, watching sports, like very simple. Like, I think like that, I think that's what it was it's like simpler times and, be able to relax and enjoy life versus, uh, you know, all of our lives being a little bit more complicated and uh, hectic these days. He's one of us guys. He's one of <laughs> us. But um, last question. I asked this to everybody. You're, you're no different. No, you grew up up here, so we'll see, but I know you travel a lot. So I have faith in you for this one. Um, uh, okay. So you're hungry and you want some fast food fried chicken. It's got to be a drive-through, be strips. It can be a chicken sandwich, anything. Every single option is available in the entire country that you've ever been to. Where are you going? I don't know. I've only, so I, I don't know. This is a tough one. This is, this is tough. I'm not really a huge fast food guy, to be honest. Uh, I try not to be, I should say. Um, Chick-fil-A, like diehard Chick-fil-A guy. Can't go wrong. Like it's always an easy one for the kids, like healthy. Uh that works. <laughs> I would say there's this is this is the first time I went to Salem, Virginia. Uh there's a Zaxby's there. And uh I had never been because I had never really been in that area. And like it was like after a game, I was like, I'm gonna this is per, like right up my alley. I gotta try it. And they, it was pretty good. I don't know if that would probably be my if I tried it like 10 more times, I don't know if I'd feel that way. But at the time, that was that was uh an A plus for me. So that that would be my would be my choice. Zaxby's would be your choice. Yeah. You just oh, made oh, oh. you just made Parker's. Did week. you do that on purpose? Like was that did you know <laughs> no. that was coming? I didn't. I did. I okay. All right. They said to ask. All right, cool. Well, guys, did you have Zaxby's one? guys in your in your profile? Exactly. I didn't know oh, that. Oh, me's Chick-fil-A, no question. Yeah, I mean Chick-fil-A, you can't go wrong, but I was I was thinking maybe a little bit more outside the box here. Like thank you. I, mean, thank you. I need to go to Zaxby's. I'm going to Texas uh in March and uh Hunter Dobbins recommended Chicken Express. So I have to okay. try that. I've never, never had that. Hunter Dobbins, big fast food guy, trying to get that. Uh if you took when you talk to him, tell him <laughs> I'm paying attention and he should not be having that. He said that uh, he got in trouble with the nutritionist a couple times about the Dr. Pepper and, and some other things, but yeah, not ideal for uh, starting you know, potential starting pitchers in the big leagues. I'd say um, maybe once you get there, but until you do, let's try to play off that. Well, Brian, you made my day. I, I was, I was batting three for 57 on Zaxby's and Benellist. <laughs> I had Blaze Jordan and Josh Lester. Those were the only three guys that said Zaxby's out of 57 episodes. So I appreciate that raising the batting average one by one. Um, but Abe's we, uh, we appreciate all the time you gave us, you gave us like an hour of your time, man. So I, I know you don't do very many of these, at least that we see. So, uh, appreciate you hopping on and, uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, at some point, probably at spring training. Yeah, th thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you.